I've always felt that the ministry of what I'm doing is to reflect the gospel. In other words, telling the story about Jesus, and you're also telling the story of what Jesus did. And so really, right through the years, I think the strand has been tell the stories, learn from the people we're meeting. We wanted to share and learn. You are listening to the Christian Music Archive podcast, part of the New Release Today podcast network. I'm your host, Dave Maurer. Each week, I share stories about Christ, community, and music, chatting with musical guests who you will find listed on the pages of the Christian Music Archive. There are thousands of creative men and women who have helped shape the soundtrack of the Christian faith, and we get to hear their stories, learn about how Christ has made a difference in their life, and hopefully along the way, we'll learn how we can be a better part of our community. Garth Hewitt was the first British Christian musician signed to Murr Records in the United Kingdom back in the early 70s. And for the last 50 years, he has recorded more than 50 records and has toured the world using his music to share about the love of Jesus. Garth was dramatically inspired by the work of Dr. Martin Luther King, who used his platform to address social issues and spiritual need. Garth is also an ordained minister in Britain, and I really enjoyed our time together. So stick around, because I think you'll enjoy this chat, too. I have just received an email from Doug Hoffman, the executive director at Mercy, Inc. He has a weekly Zoom call with ministry leaders from around the world, and many of those countries are wrestling with the impact of the COVID virus. As you've no doubt heard, India has been especially hit hard with a variant that is causing extreme illness and many deaths. COVID is spreading rapidly and is viciously aggressive. Would you please join me in praying for Mercy, Inc. and their partners as they are trying to help in these countries that are desperately in crisis? Pray for the children of parents who die because of this disease. Pray that believers will remain strong as a witness to God's love and care, even as they suffer and die. And pray for the Mercy team as they feel so helpless in this situation. Thank you for supporting Mercy, Inc. through your prayers, as they are the hands and feet of Jesus in some of these countries that have been devastated by the pandemic. For more information about the ongoing crisis relief that Mercy, Inc. is involved in, go to christianmusicarchive.com mercy. And thanks for your prayerful care. My conversation with Garth Hewitt was a fun trip down memory lane. But more importantly is Garth's desire to love the oppressed and misfortunate. Not only is he interested in sharing the gospel, he also wants to build community by sitting down to listen and learn from people who might not think just like he does. We spent quite a bit of time talking about the conflict in the Middle East. Now, this is not necessarily an easy topic in today's political climate. In fact, in our culture, we are more likely to point fingers and call each other names instead of sitting down to have a dialogue to listen and to share, and ultimately to love and to care. I found our time together rewarding, and I'd like to invite you to join in in the conversation too. So, all the way from Eastbourne, England, let's join the conversation with Garth Hewitt. And you're specifically, are you right in London, or are you? No, we were. Okay. 
we were used to be in an area called Wapping in East London. It, it was wonderful. And I had a church at the time in the city of London. Okay. It was just walking away distance. It was a very, very lovely time. But we moved out as I slightly changed the role of what I was doing. So we're now we're down by the coast. Oh. In a place called Eastbourne. Okay. It's quite a beautiful place. So in in these days of lockdown, yeah. uh, when you're allowed out to have a little bit of a walk and so on, to be able to walk by the sea is a real, uh, it's a real opportunity. You know, it's just lovely. I feel um, it's a privilege. How far are you from the beach then? It's the end of this end of this road here. So what's that? That's perhaps a mile. Okay. Yeah. We're about an hour from the beach and we oh. try to try to go out and walk on the beach as often as we can too, because there's just something about that. The sea air and the uh, the surf and everything, it just makes it uh, wonderful. It, it's quite special, I think. Um, there's a place we go to. If I don't go for a bit, I miss it. And I think there's almost a spiritual aspect with it as well. And uh, you sense that, you feel, oh, this is a moment, a place to, to be quiet, perhaps yeah. to pray, you know. It's nice. Very nice. I have to tell you, I was in church one day uh, having a particularly rough period of my time, and I prayed to the Lord. I said, Lord, I just need to feel you. I know you're here, but I need to feel you. And I had this breath of literal physical air flow over me. Now, four or five weeks later, I found out that there was a window that was open. But still, my point of saying that is I have I went to the beach shortly after that and was walking along the beach feeling the wind and feeling it as... Here is the spirit breathing on me even greater in nature. And uh, yeah, it was just it was just lovely. So no, that is a beautiful thing. And sometimes I think uh, out of nature come things that just remind us. Yeah. You know, that uh, his eye on the, is on the sparrow and also us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Garth, I first became aware of you back in the early 80s. Uh, I was a DJ on a radio station and was spinning some of your records from your early Murr record days. In uh, fact, I think, weren't you the first artist signed to Murr Britain? I think I was. There may have been one other, a guy called Dave Pope. Dave Pope, yeah. He and I were probably signed about the same time. We were the first ones. Because I know your first record is Murr 001, so you get the first credit. <laughs> oh, good, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially it was an exciting time, and because they were... They were starting, and um, there was a freshness about it. It was it was lovely. Now, this was the early 70s, so that kind of corresponds with the Jesus music movement here in the States. Was was that kind of the same thing going on there in Great Britain? It was, um, to a lesser extent, in the, um, but we were influenced by um, s particularly certain Americans who came over, people like Larry Norman and mm. Randy Stokehill and people, um, Chuck Girard. yeah. It started happening here. Um, it was as if people felt, well, we, we can do this, you know. Mm -hmm. we'll... So there was a whole group who started to do it, and then um, <clears throat> there came a festival called the Greenbelt Festival, right. which sort of sprung up on a farm. Um, I was playing, all sorts of people were playing, and then at the end of it, people said, now what is this? Should, should we do it? regularly or whatever ah. and they and i was one of the ones they said will you sit on the committee as well <laughs> and it's still going you know yeah. it was extraordinary so i think although it looks different as a festival and that reflects the way music has gone from the christian community i think it's um the storytelling aspect mm -hmm. of music not just the worship songs was very much a part of it but i think the record companies 
put some pressure on and they were keen <laughs> to have the worship songs. Yeah. And that's fine. But the I also felt the troubadours, the storytellers, all of that was was really important. Mm -hmm. And that's not so strong today here. It may be stronger in the States, I don't know. Yeah, worship is definitely the movement here in the States and, and less that storytelling. But so you played that first Green Belt. Were you part of, I mean, were you doing music prior to that? Or how did you kind of get started doing your musical stuff? Was that a, something you started as a, as a kid, mom and dad making you take lessons, or how did that work? I wish they had. Um, I asked them when I was 11, uh, or around that age, I'd mm -hmm. say, could I play the violin? Mm. And they said, no, we can't afford it, because I, I could get lessons at school, but we'd have to pay for it. Yeah. And it's a really interesting, I still love, I, I've never taken it up, but yeah. I still love it, and I use it on quite a few tracks. But... Isn't that interesting that I picked on that instrument? Yeah. Um, and then later um, on in my time at school, I started to want to do some music. And I'd heard some Christians saying that, you know, the pop music and so on, that sort of stuff wasn't, wasn't good. And so I, I spoke to a teacher about it. And um, he said, you know, that's not right. If you've got a musical gift, it's from God, and you must use it. The next, they, they had a, um, well, it was called the Glee Club they had at the school. It was like a pop, you, you did pop music. The next one, I was playing with a band. <laughs> so it, it, it got me started. But, and then when I was at university, I did lots more music both in the university, I even went to other universities and I was doing stuff. And uh, the Christian aspect came out in the song. I started writing. Mm -hmm. And someone said, you know, why don't you write a song? And it was like a shock. Whoa, that's, that's other people do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so that started and um, I started performing in, in different places and then it just carried on. So even though I was doing, like I went on to theological college after school, after university, yeah, um, but I was still playing quite a bit, yeah, and uh, and then I got ordained in Canterbury Cathedral, and I was in a parish, a curate in a parish, not so far away, and even then, though I was doing the normal parish activities, yeah, uh, the music became a key aspect of it. Okay, so so your music. The, the bulk of your work that I have seen has spoken very deeply about the hurting, the hungry, the whole, the, the homeless. Um, was that always part of your music or did that kind of grow as you experienced life? How did that become a part of what you do? That's very interesting. Um, when I was 17, I went to St. Paul's cathedral to hear Martin Luther King speak. Mm. And I was kind of thinking through my own faith at the time. You know, I came from a Christian home. It hadn't been against it or anything like that. But I was sort of, what, how does this, how does it fit together? Went and heard him. Because I'd seen him on the television. I, and I'd seen him, I think it was like Selma, the bridge at Selma. Oh, he, uh -huh. They were spraying water, sending dogs on them, all sorts of yeah. stuff. And I thought, this is, man's got a strong faith here. Yeah. Um, and he put it together in that sermon because he, he talked about loving God with all your heart, 
and then loving your neighbor as yourself and uh, have yourself in the right perspective so you can love your neighbor. And then he obviously interpreted love your neighbor very much in terms of social justice, caring for other people. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, that's right. That makes sense. This is what <laughs> seems to, to make sense of it all. And the only question for me was, and how do you do that? How do you pick mm. up that aspect that he's talking about there on the social justice side? Right. And when I started my ministry in terms of when I was a priest in church and so on, you knew what you were trying to do in terms of the local community and so on. But in terms of songwriting, you, I was kind of gradually listening to stories of um, issues of justice, issues of compassion, um, and it began to become a part of what I was doing. Yeah. And because I did that, then I found that um, relief and development agencies and churches from other parts of the world would ask me to come see their situation and um, write some songs, write something about what was going on. Yeah. So I started to pick up themes. I mean, moment, you know, you went into a context of poverty or yeah. conflict or whatever, uh, you would obviously, you start writing. I mean, you're you you want to tell that story. So those are born out of the experiences that you had as you went to these different places, saw these different situations. And most most artists' best songs are written out of their own personal experience. But this personal experience impacted you much more deeply because a lot of people, you know, I'll go to see something and I'll, I'll write a poem about it or write a song about it and then I'll move on. But for mm -hmm. you, that encounter with Martin Luther King and his, his statement was very life-changing, it sounds like. It was. It was. And um, at a crucial moment, I think, I saw a man who he actually got down and prayed on the street mm -hmm. and under all this conflict. And so on, I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, yeah. this is an example. And, um, and then I started quite early on to put this into the songs. Mm -hmm. um, there's a song on my second album, I think it is, um, where I'd come across some words of Mother Teresa, mm -hmm. and I actually got permission to use them. Ah. And the song was called Walk in His Shoes, and it's very much a song about reaching out to the hungry, the homeless, obviously what Mother Teresa was already doing. Yeah. And um, the um, talking about Jesus as a friend of the poor, he brings good news he marches for justice for those born to lose. It was very straightforward. And um, I think it's a song that I'd still be happy with, you know, and say, right, that's one I'm, I can do. And um, I did, although she'd given permission on the words, I kind of thought that might have been the publishers and maybe she doesn't know. <laughs> and when I was in India one time, um, a guy in Calcutta said, I'd like to take you to meet Mother Teresa. Oh, wow. And so I was able to give her a copy of the song. It was it was a very, very moving thing, very yeah. moving. Yeah. Well, and so you've written a couple songs about Martin Luther King. You've got the uh, Tell Him uh, Tell Him the Dream Martin, which was a, yeah. is a great song. And I think you had another one. I'm trying to remember what it was. Uh, is it no Justice yeah. Will Last Forever? Or anyway. There's one called The People of the West. Okay. And it's... This was written pretty early on, 
And it starts off, you shot down your dreamers, you've done something else. <laughs> and the people of the West like to invest in the something about keeping the poor world poor. So it really was a pretty strong message. Yeah. And, and, and there was obviously referencing Martin Luther King, this was after his death. Um, but, oh, I know the other one also, um, which is Light a Candle in the Darkness. Yes, okay. And that one um, starts off um, with Martin Luther King. Light a candle in the darkness Light a candle in the night Let the light of God unite us Light a candle in the night It was raining down in Memphis On the night before he died A shot of hate would come tomorrow Maybe that's why the heavens cried Light a candle in the darkness Light a candle in the night Let the light of God unite us Light a candle in the night it Yeah, that song is very much um, kind of picking up um, how I'd been influenced and yes. other people have influenced me as time went on. So you were making music there in Britain. You obviously came to the States at some point because I've seen stuff with you here. What was that journey like the first time you crossed the pond <laughs> to come see us Yanks over here and sing for us? What was what was that experience like? That's interesting. I'm trying to think. The first to um, the first time. It was very exciting because yeah. to me, I'd always been influenced by American music. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, you know, there was no reason why that should have been the case, but that was what was hitting the charts quite a lot. And, and, and I liked all the sound of that. Um, and I suspect it was when I first got a, a record out in the States. Um, and that was with Myrrh in the States, I think. Yeah. And it would have been one of the early ones, but then who put on the gigs when I first came out, but, I can't remember too clearly, but I got to, um, there were certain promoters that put me on. Yeah. And also quite early, I did a tour with um, Phil Kagi. Oh, wow. And um, it was like a three-week tour. May have been four weeks, but I left after three. Um, <laughs> not because I didn't like it, I loved it. It was, yeah. a, it was a great time with him. A wonderful musician. Yeah. And a wonderful person. And that was good. And I, I have a favorite moment from that tour. It was Good Friday, and we were down in Mississippi, and Randy Stonehill came as a guest to the gig. And there was Randy, Phil, and myself doing this gig on Good Friday somewhere in Mississippi. And I, I thought, well, 
That's amazing. <laughs> it felt great to me because, you know, it's the sort of thing I, I'd heard about, I'd seen in films and what have you. And, yeah. uh, um, so it was uh, very moving. I, I made good friends in the States. And one of the things that happened was Compassion had heard some of my material. Mm -hmm. And they said, would I do some work for them? Yeah. And I did some overseas trips with them, but also I did some, I presented some television programs for them. I mean, maybe just, you know, two or three. Okay. Um, and that was great. And it was really very, very special to do some work with them. And they took me off to different places, showed me the projects they were working with. And so again, um, songs songs came out of that too yeah so kind of my point of asking that question is did you sense a difference in people's interest in compassion between there in great britain and here in the states or was was that all kind of just the same global kind of feeling of compassion's important i think because i'd got involved early on i'd got involved with a relief and development agency in britain called tear fund Okay. That linked with compassion in the States. And they were taking me to see projects. And in fact, I think this is maybe how I ended up in the States first. Um, because I think it was through their influence and, and they took me to compassion. And it was a time when people were starting to think about these issues. Uh, not just driven, say, from the Christian end of things. There were the demonstrations that were against the Vietnam War and all of that. Yeah. And I often, I don't know, if the, I think it was similar probably in the States, but some of the music was influenced by these issues. Yeah. And also it was an opportunity to sing in the style of things and, and reflect your Christian viewpoint as well. Um, so I think we were getting similar things, uh, probably on a smaller scale in the UK, but it was similar um, to what was happening in the States. And it, because it was a time of opportunity, I think all sorts of musicians were able to make the most of it. It was a real um, great time to be free and wanting to do some music. And uh, people were listening. People yeah. were open to it. Well, at some point then, you started a foundation. In fact, in my notes, I think it's uh, 85, you started the Amos Trust, yeah, which was a, a, an organization that focused attention on a lot of different organizations and raised funds for them. Is that is that what I understand? Yes, um, though not not initially. Um, the what happened was one time I got an invitation to go to Poland, I think it was, and I thought, oh yeah, that sounds pretty good, but they didn't have any money. Okay, and I thought well, it, it can't just say yes to invitations because they people can pay (laughs) (laughs) you know there's a ministry here yeah so i talked with people at my church um which was in a place called guildford at that time and they said well let's start a trust and raise money to do journeys of that sort where i went listened to their situation tried to come back and tell the story which raised awareness and it did if there was a link with a agency or something or a church then yeah. it, it did raise support then after a few years uh, or maybe about three years one of the trustees said listen we need to be keeping in touch with the people um, we've got good relationship we've heard the stories 
let's raise financial support as well. And um, we also had an attitude very much of learning from them. So bringing them over so we could hear what they were saying. And uh, otherwise we kind of felt we might be just sort of dominating a little bit. We wanted to hear, wanted that to influence our community. Yeah. And so we made some very good partners and that's continued to, to today. Yeah. I've just stopped being director, I think about eight years ago, but um, just at the end of 2020, I um, stopped being on the staff. So I, I, I'd still do music and so on, but I wanted to slow the pace a bit of yeah. what I was doing. Uh, but it's still, it's got some lovely contacts. It's very prophetic in what it's doing. It does things in unusual places too, where not everyone would go. We've got a very strong link with the Palestinians and, um, you know, that has been a subject for some people, they wouldn't want to pick up on that. Mm. Uh, and we got our criticism. <laughs> but we, um, we've we been able to introduce people to partners, to Palestinian churches and to um, people working for the Palestinian community for justice for them and so on. And um, it's been a privilege because there's so many people who are kind of involved in that um, even though it's for other people unpopular, so certain churches get say we'd, we'd like to be involved yeah. with this, and say, "Well, we're a bit nervous about that." Well, that's all right, you know. Um, but you you plot on. <laughs> well, if you look at the way Jesus did things, he didn't always meet with the popular folks either. So, <laughs> well, you talked about trying to bring stuff back from your the trips that you've made, and you had an album out. Uh, uh, My name is Palestine was the single from it, I think. Um, that that was kind of pulling your experience there in Palestine and bringing that back, right? Yes, that one um, was based on a on a painting, which um, was done by a man called Suleiman Mansour, mm -hmm. and he's one of the top Palestinian artists. Okay. And I, there's a hotel. Banksy has a hotel in Bethlehem. Uh, Banksy the artist and okay. I was there I'm a friend of the manager there and um, he has an art gallery in the hotel and I went upstairs into the art gallery and this painting hit me I mean it really it's a desert a voice in the, in the wilderness yeah. you know it's something yeah. happening yeah so I came down and I said to my friend Wissam I said you know I want to write a song about that I said okay and I said, I want to do a 12-inch single as well because I want it to be on the front and, you know, a little CD case. is right. not enough for a great painting like that. <laughs> yeah. And I said, but I obviously would need Suleiman's permission. He said, okay. He went to his phone, called him straight away. <laughs> was a little chatting in Arabic for a while. And then he said, but yes, that's fine. Wow. Which was incredible. Yeah. And when we launched it in Bethlehem, Suleiman was there, and oh. he was a wonderful, wonderful person, and his art is quite stunning. A voice cries out in the wilderness, I hear her call, but I don't know her name. A voice cries again in the wilderness, my name is Palestine and I will remain. She's holding a flag so very high. 
raises her voice with such a strong cry She's a symbol of the people who refuse to die Says my name is Palestine and I will survive I will survive, I will survive My name is Palestine and I will survive said to him sort of towards the end of it I said well I felt I put you know my thoughts onto this painting yeah and I said I know they they didn't be exactly what your thoughts were he said actually your what the way you took it was very much what I was meaning and I thought that I found um I thought wow, that's great that's yeah. great because we could have done different reads way of reading it but this um this came out and I think we had a very similar viewpoint. Well, you have uh, done albums for 50 years. Is that okay to say? <laughs> That's a lot of, yes. a lot of al- albums. Talk, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so over the, over the course of your 50 years, has there kind of been a trajectory of your music or has it always been looking at that? How do we take Christ to people who need it, where they need it and how they need it? I've always felt, that the ministry of what I'm doing is to reflect that the rounded aspect of what I would call the gospel. In other words, um, you're telling the story about Jesus, and um, so people are hearing that. You're also telling the story of what Jesus did, yeah. um, which, you know, there can be aspects of the Sermon on the Mount. It might be the way he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and you know what this was so different from what the empire was doing with their war horses the other side this yeah. was riding on a donkey non-violent and so i felt that i never had a problem with talking about those things i was ordained as well so i right. thought you know this is this is what i'm called to do and also what i felt came stronger and stronger was i was called to pick up the social justice side as well that was part of what um I was doing. So I was very happy to do that. I told the stories. If people, there were occasions, you know, people didn't like what I'm saying. And I just felt that's okay. And um, I'll, I'll keep doing it, but they're entitled to their view. And, um, and so really right through the years, I think the strand has been tell the stories, learn from the people we're meeting who would change your views a bit mm-hmm. uh, because um, we didn't want to patronize them. We didn't want to um, dominate them. We wanted to share and learn mm-hmm. and the learning, bringing them back. And then later with the Amos Trust, we took groups to the, to meet with the projects and that would be life changing for them. Uh, and so that was a real privilege to do that. You've been on staff at a church. You've been a, a pastor. 
how does sharing the gospel through spoken word and sharing the gospel through music, how is that different or is it the same? And, and, and how have you wrestled with that? There is some similarity and some difference. But, you know, um, when I'm doing a talk, I've got, um, there's one coming up I'm doing uh, early March. And they said, oh, it's, it's mainly a talk. I said, okay, can I illustrate it with songs? <laughs> <laughs> it's so interwoven. It's yeah. so interwoven. And it's the same way I might use a poem. Mm-hmm. I might use someone else's poem. You know, whatever paints the picture, tells the story, introduces people to the character of Jesus, the lifestyle of Jesus, and what we as a community um, of hope, as I think we should be, introducing people to that, people are often opened up by songs. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying they're not opened up by people chatting, and I think, you know, and preaching or whatever, but there is something about songs, there is something about a poem, I think there's something about a painting. You know, yeah. I, I'm very keen on the way it, for art to be used. As I said that, um, behind my head, and there's an example. I got that down in Durban. We were working, uh, my son started us working with street children down okay. in Durban. And it's still going on. It, it, it's, been, it's been tremendous. But this painting is by... Um, a guy called Sitoli, um, what, I can't remember his first name, Isma, uh, Isaiah Sitoli, or something like that. I, I have to look at the bottom of the painting. <laughs> um, and it's an angel over uh, a woman and child in a village in South Africa. And it's called Blessing. I bought it at a shop down there because in my mind, I saw the wings of the angel there and I and I went away and wrote a song called Wings of Love over Africa. And um, that, uh, because Tom was down there and working with people, he was very pleased that I picked up that theme. <laughs> and, um, and it's interesting, if you glance through what I've done, quite regularly paintings have nudged me. Mm. And uh, I'm encouraged that they do, but... Um, <laughs> Wings of Love Over Africa or, or My Name's Palestine, these things, they, they're helpful to me. And I think they're helpful to people. If we, yeah. if I'm doing a concert, we show a PowerPoint and pictures and it, it, all, it all links in. I haven't done the normal church ministry that most people would do. In other words, yes, I was a curate in a church for three years, and that means you're kind of learning from the vicar. Mm-hmm. Um, that was very good. I was always on the... Um, I would always be like an honorary priest uh, at a church. Um, But also I then started doing some work for churches. Uh, So when I was in a church in Guildford, I was on the staff as well because I was doing stuff on issues of justice and peace and uh, bringing that and development and so on. So that would be my responsibility to bring that both into the church and and into the diocese. Yeah. Um, So, and then when I went, um, I was up in London and I worked for a time with um, a relief and development agency called Christian Aid. And I was um, heading up their work in the London area and, and the southeast. 
And they were in a little office, you know, where which was the headquarters. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I don't think that's quite right. I think our team should maybe be somewhere. I said, tell you what, why don't we get a church? Mm. So they told me I could go and see if I could. So I went to the Bishop of London. I said, I want a church. <laughs> he, he a very wonderful man uh, who, um, he said, well, hang on, I've just offered one to somebody. I don't think they're going to take it. Mm. But it would suit what you're wanting. So, because I said to him, look, I want this Christian aid team up at one end, the Amos Trust team the other end, and maybe we'll do some creative stuff. And we got, we got an arts thing in the middle. Yeah. Uh, Greenbelt came with their offices for a time into it as well. So it's called All Hallows on the Wall. And I was there, I, don't, I can't remember how many years it did, maybe 15 or more. Um, it was a wonderful centre. It was it was great, and um, in the end, I think we were probably doing too much. It was, but it, <laughs> it was a great, great link, great opportunities. It meant I was touring a little bit less um, and writing songs, so I felt it's time to go back to a bit more of that. But it sounds a little bit like what Charlie Peacock in the U.S. did with the Art House. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Oh. Uh, organization that is kind of a, an incubator maybe for, for ministries and artists and so forth to have a home base, but also to have the support of, of folks behind them to help them and encourage them to do what God's called them to do. So very yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that, that sounds nice. Yeah. We had him over at Greenbelt Festival, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what a wonderful guy. Well, let's talk a little bit about, um, I, I don't want to always focus on people's history, but that's what we do. We're an archive that documents what people have done. If you were to look back over the last 50 years, is there a highlight for you that stands out? I like to call it that pinch me moment, like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I got to be part of that experience. Is there something like that that stands out in your mind from your work the last 50 years? Wow. You know, I've been very fortunate in extraordinary ways. Um, and there have been quite a lot of moments like that. I remember being driven with a group of other clergy down into Gaza, and we were going to meet President Arafat. Mm -hmm. And um, when we get there, um, the bishop, Bishop Ria Abu al-Assal, he says to Yasser Arafat, oh, we have a singer here. And I thought, I, I think I know what's coming, and I haven't got a guitar or anything. Um, and he's, he says he has a song about Palestine. So I said, okay. And as this was being said, a microphone was handed over my shoulder. <laughs> and so I had to sing it. And, Nothing like uh, being I, put on the spot, huh? <laughs> I was on the spot. And I thought, I've got to do this. And also I knew the song goes pretty high. So you've got to pitch it right and not, you know, not go too high to start with. <laughs> it was an incredible moment. Um, something like that, where you have the opportunity to meet people like that, yeah. meet people like the bishop. You know, that bishop made me a canon of St. George's um, Episcopal Cathedral in Jerusalem. And uh, I said to him when when he was doing that what do you want a canon to do and he said tell our story he said you're telling our story in your song so 
keep telling our story. And so I always count that as a real privilege that I have that role, still have that role in the cathedral in Jerusalem. But I, um, who would have thought that something like that would happen? I also, I'm a great lover of poets and so, mm -hmm. so forth. And Mahmoud Darwish, who is the top Palestinian poet, okay. was a member of the House of Poets in Ramallah. And I was invited to do a concert with the House of Poets. So they were doing their poetry, I was doing the singing. So, oh, you know, I thought, oh, this is great. And yeah. it was Saturday night in Ramallah. And on the Sunday, some of the poets came through into the church. And it was, a, it was an amazing moment because they were Muslims and um, the Muslim-Christian relationship is very good in that context. And in they came, they walked through and the bishop who was taking the service stopped it and um, spoke to them. And they said, we want to present uh, Garth with this. And it was a signed certificate of appreciation, really, huh. from the House of Poets. And I thought, that is going to mean an awful lot to me. <laughs> That's special. Um, yeah. Mahmoud Dawish had died, actually, by that time. But it did. It, his link with it was very important to me. And um, so there's moments like that, I, you think, yeah, how, how did we get here? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it reminds me of the fact that Jesus has, has promised that if we follow after what God's call is on our life, he will place us in situations that make it very easy for us to do, in fact, do things bigger and beyond our wildest dreams. But I think so often in 21st century culture, we are so focused on me, 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 and my needs and my wants. Yeah. So what would you say to somebody who maybe has a tug in their heart to do something, maybe has an inkling that there's this big problem out there? It could be racism. It could be poverty. It could be human traffic, whatever it is. But I'm just me. How in the world could I make a difference in all of that? What what kind of encouragement would you give somebody who's thinking about the grandioseness of the problems around us and the minusculeness of the way I feel? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I would want to encourage them because in a sense, if you feel this is the emphasis that you should have um, and the role that you can play, then do it because it will be satisfying to you. And if you feel that that's a, a vocation, then um, do it. Even that, whether it's going to be in big ways or small ways, doesn't matter. You, you're doing what's right, and and you'll feel, I think, at peace if you're able to do that. I wouldn't be put off, and and I think people who've done this often find they've ended up, yes, in extraordinary situations because they met people, they kept going, they said things that were perhaps unpopular, um, but they were the right things at the right time. They had a prophetic voice. So, yeah, you have to pinch yourself sometimes when you're sitting in a context with, with a leader of a country or something, and um, you think, wow, what, what do I say now? Um, <laughs> but do it, because I think it's very important that the practical nature of Jesus is reflected in what we do. I think it means a lot to people. I Let me explain what I mean. Um, 
I was watching a film the other day. It's a film that's been released just in Lent. Uh, um, and it's about Patriarch Michel Sabah. He's um, the Catholic Patriarch in Ramallah in okay. Palestine. Well, and he's retired really now, but he still, he lives a life more of prayer and so on. But they've made a film about him and um, it's actually got a very sensitive, very good film. He's, it's, um, I was quite inspired. And the man who made the film, they asked him if he would talk afterwards. And he, he's a Muslim and his name's Mohammed. And he just starts and tells this story. He said, my son came up to me and he said, I, I want, could you help me with something for school? And he said, uh, yeah, what do you want? He said, I, I need to interview you. Um, he said, okay, well, far away then. He said, who is your hero? And Mohammed said, oh, no one's asked me that before. I, mm. I don't know. I'll have to think about that. So his son said, okay, give you a bit of time. Comes back the next day and said, who is your hero? And he says, Jesus. And his son says, well, we're Muslims. Yeah. And he says, yes, but Jesus was the first social activist, mm -hmm. social justice activist. And he said his Sermon on the Mount is the, you know, the most uh, impressive human rights document. Mm -hmm. And so he sees him in terms of human rights, social justice, and the clarity of his vision an understanding of that. I thought, I think even as Christians, we sometimes forget the nature of that and how that yeah. um, can really communicate and speak to people. So there we have a Muslim who is happy to say, yes, this is my hero yeah. because he's picked up those social justice issues. He was an activist. And so we can affirm. Um, and I think we see moments like that where we recognize if we can speak up uh, about the way we see things, others will do it and, and we'll all get refreshed and challenged by each other. And I, I believe that's a very hopeful thing. Well, and I think of the fact that the way Jesus did his social activism was he rubbed shoulders with people. He got in the trenches with them. He went to dinner with people who were not very popular. He, you know, and I think a lot of times in, in my experience anyway, is when I take time to say, I'm no different than this person who's struggling and whatever it is, let's sit down, let's maybe break bread together, let's spend some time just talking and getting to know each other. That to me is where we cross the barriers of this social muck that the world has provided to us and puts us in a situation where we could say, all of a sudden, oh, hey, you're a human just like me, you have hurts just like me. Maybe we can work together on some of these things. Yeah. So. I think that's very important, yeah. Well, one of the questions that I've always been told, never ask a person, this, an, an artist, this question, because everybody's song is like their child. You can't pick your favorite child. <laughs> but do you, looking back over your, uh, your catalog, do you have an album or a song that for you just really kind of capsulates what you hope people take away from an interaction with Garth? Well, you're, you're right. It's a difficult one. Um, I think I have certain favorites in the sense that um you know like tell them about the dream martin uh, which is because i was influenced by martin luther king that one um is i think a very important song and and therefore i tend to always try and do that and 
it's based on a musician. It's actually about Mahalia Jackson. Right. And I didn't realize until it came to the 50th anniversary and there was a, a book out about it. Uh, I knew lots about him. I yeah. didn't know. Mahalia, he wasn't going to do the I Have a Dream speech. Right. And up in Washington. And it's getting, it's very hot day. It's not quite taking off, you know. He's coming towards the end of his talk. And Mahalia Jackson calls out, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And she sings, shouts it out a couple of times. And it turns. He, he pushes his notes away and goes into it. And there we are. The musician had been sensitive to, we need something different. And she yeah. heard him do it before. So he listened to her because she was very influential to him. Yeah. And then we see this becomes one of the most well-known speeches in the world. In the heat to be free Songs and speeches were given The day was wearing on Then it was Martin Luther King's turn To lift the spirits of everyone As he was close to finishing Or at least that's how it seemed Then the great Mahalia Jackson called Tell him about the dream Oh, tell him about the dream, Martin Tell him about the dream. Tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. 28th of August, 1963, at the Great March on Washington, he called for all to be free. Let justice roll down like water, ride living like a mighty stream. Then the great Mahalia Jackson called. Tell him about the dream. Oh, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. Tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. He told them this is the time to rise up from the dark, from the quicksand of racial injustice to a solid, sunlit path, from the desolate valley of segregation. Which now is the time to leave Then the great Mahalia Jackson called Tell him about the dream Oh, tell him about the dream That song, I, I, because of the story, because of how it comes about, uh, is very important to me. I like I liked the campaigning songs, and I hope they've been an encouragement to people. I mean, the, My Name is Palestine has had millions of um, viewings on YouTube. Uh -huh. I mean, I've never had that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's because it was saying to a whole community, you are valued. So they show one another. <laughs> and um, I've got so many um, little notes about people who'd been listening to it, and a lot from Gaza, and one father was saying you know when they're bombing us my little eight-year-old son is very frightened and um we've learned the words of this song together now and we we sing it and he he he's at peace Well, Garth, one of the things that we do every Saturday, I send out a newsletter to a bunch of folks who have committed to pray for musicians. How can we specifically be praying for you in these weeks and months ahead? 
I'm very grateful, Dave, that you do that. I've noticed that comes through and my, my PA tells me. That. But there's something very meaningful about it, so thank you. Particularly at this time, which is the same issue for so many uh, musicians, so many pastors as well. This is complex time. Uh, so it's finding out what we can do in this time that um, helps people, communicates. I've started, I didn't think the year would end last year with Zoom concerts, but that's what was <laughs> happening. And I thought, okay, we've got to be sensitive. Things are changing. We can't go out necessarily, but we can still communicate. Um, guidance for the Garth Hewitt Foundation. It's a, it's a small setup, but it helps me as a place to do the creativity, the right prayers, to write maybe some liturgies, to write poems, to write songs, books, um, and to know what to spend time on and what not to, to be wise. Because um, otherwise, you know, it can drift all over the place. So I'd value prayer for that. I think those are the immediate things that come to my mind. Thank you, Garth, for the reminder of our role as followers of Christ to love people, to sit down and learn from them, to develop relationships and build community, even with people we may not see eye to eye with. I'm reminded of the scripture in Mark chapter 2, where Jesus says, Healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come not to call those who think they are righteous, but to call those who know that they are sinners. Jesus' description wasn't around race or politics or even financial status. He came to die for everyone who knows they need a Savior. In fact, he came to die for people who don't know they need a Savior. So why in the world do we as believers choose to draw lines in the sand between accepted and unaccepted? Jesus didn't do that. He loves everybody and desires a personal relationship with everyone. My conversation with Garth is a reminder to me to stop looking for things that divide us, but rather learn from each other things that unite us. And maybe by spending time together, we'll be able to share about the love of God to forgive and save everyone. As always, thanks for joining me for this conversation today. I am grateful that we get to spend this time together each week hearing stories of God's amazing faithfulness. As a regular listener to this podcast, would you mind taking a few minutes and rating it on your favorite podcast app? Reviews and ratings really help spread the word so that other folks can hear about these great conversations. And if you have comments or questions for me, please feel free to drop me a message on any of the social media platforms. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon by searching for at CCMExchange. Or you can always drop me an email on the website, christianmusicarchive.com. I'm really looking forward to our time together next week when I have another great conversation with one of the musicians you'll find on the pages of the Christian Music Archive. So until then, remember this, God loves you. In fact, he's crazy about you. <laughs>